Worldview with the Irish Times. This week, we'll be examining the latest developments regarding Ukraine with our correspondent, Daniel McLaughlin, and Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Our Madrid correspondent, Guy Hedgeco, will tell us about the plans for a referendum in Catalonia on independence from Spain to take place later this year. And Clifford Coonan will have the latest on the mystery of Malaysia Airlines Flight 307. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. The crisis over Ukraine has escalated yet further with today's signing of a bill by Vladimir Putin and Crimea's leaders providing for the peninsula to be absorbed into the Russian Federation. The speed with which Putin has, in effect, moved to annex Crimea has taken even seasoned Kremlin watchers by surprise. I'm joined now by Suzanne Lynch, our European correspondent from Brussels, to talk about the fallout in Europe from Putin's decision today. Suzanne, there has already been some strong reaction, I think, to what Putin announced today. Yes, yeah, we've seen a lot of the EU leaders come out today uh, denouncing the referendum again and the decision by Putin to sign this treaty. David Cameron called it unacceptable, and so did Francois Hollande. And what we're seeing now is this very strong reaction from across Europe ahead of Thursday, because on Thursday there's a summit of EU leaders when the heads of state are going to gather in Brussels. So um, all eyes will be on the reaction at at the summit. And Suzanne, we've already had the decision taken by foreign ministers, EU foreign ministers, to impose sanctions on a number of Ukrainian and Russian officials, 21, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that, that, that's it, yes. That, that was yesterday, earlier this week in Brussels on Monday, foreign affairs ministers met um, to discuss sanctions. So pressure was on the EU to act. Um, there has been some criticism about the level of sanctions, only 21 people. The US, uh, you know, simultaneously announced sanctions on 11. They were slightly more hard-hitting. Um, but at the same time, I think we have to see it in terms, in the context of an of a, of a overall approach. Effectively, by only choosing to uh, target 21 individuals, some of whom are very senior politicians in, in the Russian parliament, um, it, it allows Europe to um, hold back some ammunition, if you like, for Thursday. So, so it leaves them the option of maybe increasing the list or, um, you know, implementing further action on Thursday. There had been a list circulating last week of up to 130 names. Some countries had been pushing to include all these names, but in the end they, they stopped at 21. But there would be an expectation that this might be expanded when leaders meet on Thursday and Friday. And why do you think the, the EU has taken such a, a cautious approach so far, if, it is, if indeed it is cautious? As you say, it's a matter of interpretation. Mm. Um, is it because of the conflicting interests of, of member states, some who have much closer ties with Russia than others? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is the key difference when one thinks about the US response and the EU response. At the end of the day, the EU is trying to um, merge the opinions of 28 different countries. It's also much more dependent and interdependent on Russia economically and and socially and politically than the US is. So, I mean, you could could see it in two ways. Okay, only 21 people were sanctioned, but at the same time, a couple of weeks ago, there was no appetite to do this at all. So, you know, the EU, in a sense, has come some way um, towards a a common approach to dealing with the Russian issue. But, I mean, it's it's quite easy, I suppose, to criticise the EU, saying it's cautious. But there's a lot of clever diplomacy going on here um, they're trying to keep the lines of communication open with Putin. A lot of the individual leaders are, are speaking to him quite regularly. Um, and there's a softly, softly approach in the sense that it's, it's more of an incremental approach. As I say, they want to keep um, something in reserve that they can increase the pressure on Putin as, as they can respond to as, as things change quite quickly throughout the week. Um, but you're, you're right in that there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of conflicting views within Europe. A lot of the Eastern European countries, the Baltic states, 
Poland are very, very strong. They wanted much more stronger messages um, against Russia, stronger sanctions. They're supported by countries like Sweden. But then you've other countries like Germany, for example, which is a bit more cautious. Um, they have a lot. They are more dependent for their energy on, on a lot of other countries. They have a lot. They do a lot of business with Russia. A lot of German companies export manufacturing products, etc., to, to Russia. So, in a sense, that you know, they would be more affected by any economic sanctions. Nevertheless, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, she has toughened her position um, sort of as the crisis has unfolded. Isn't that correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's quite interesting what's happening with Germany. Traditionally, uh, they think they take a back seat in terms of foreign policy in Europe um, for historic reasons, really. Um, but And France and Britain are, are the only two permanent members of the UN Security Council. But, you know, in, in this situation, they, they're being forced to take a, take a stronger role. Um, Merkel has been in contact with Putin a lot. Um, but with, with a lot of things in Europe, I mean, what Germany says, you know, you know, matters. And um, but other countries as well. I mean, France today has has um, suggested that it may suspend its deal, a, a controversial deal that it has with Russia to sell military warships. Um, and there's an example of how you know the French economy is dependent on Russia, and they have gone and said, well, what about the UK? They have a lot of Russian oligarchs, a lot of Russian property owners in London, and the city of London, of course, is worried about maybe affecting affecting them. So you do have a lot of these competing interests within within Europe about how to deal with the Russian issue. Now, as you mentioned, Suzanne, EU leaders will meet in Brussels on Thursday and Friday for a summit. Is it inevitable now, given um, Putin's actions today, that the sanctions will be increased? Yes, I mean, this, this meeting had been scheduled anyway, and, and what's happened is that's going to be a lot of diplomatic activity in the next week or so. The summit of leaders starts on Thursday and Friday, and then President Obama was due to travel to Brussels next week for the first official visit to the EU anyway. This is definitely going to be dominated by Ukraine now. And he's also called a meeting of G7 uh, countries in The Hague next week. So we're really, the focus is really going to be on Europe and, and the fact that Obama will be in Europe um, is interesting. And, and I'd say it's a result of timing, if nothing, if nothing less. But yes, yeah, sanctions, the first thing people will be looking for is sanctions on Thursday. But we're still looking really at sanctions at, at individuals. This means, you know, travel bans, asset freezes. But in terms of imposing bigger sanctions, maybe uh, real real proper trade sanctions to do with energy, to do with export, I think we're still quite a bit away from that yet. And what about um, broadening the sanctions to include business people such as the Russian oligarchs, if you like, so far it's been yeah. confined to officials and politicians. Yeah, absolutely. It's been confined to politicians and military people, um, but half from, from Ukraine, half from Russia. Um, but there had been some people who'd been connected with Russian business, um, uh, senior people in Gazprom and companies like that, that had been um, on this original list, this larger list. So there will be questions on Thursday leaders whether they're prepared to, to sanction those individuals, if you like, indirectly um, get at business. Um, so that will be the focus of, of people's attention on Thursday and Friday here in Brussels. And finally, Suzanne, do you think, is there still scope for some kind of diplomatic resolution between now and the week and, and, and Thursday and Friday? Um, or is this crisis only headed in one direction? Yeah, I mean, I, to, to be fair, I mean, the thing about, you know, today... Uh, Putin's very uh, patriotic announcement in Moscow um, when, he, when he signed this treaty. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it worries a lot of people, but at the same time, he didn't seem to indicate that, you know, he's going to move further into, the, into Ukraine. So, and markets have been fairly steady on the, on the back of that, so that's, that's a good sign. 
Um, I mean, EU, EU foreign ministers this week have stressed that diplomatic channels are still open, and they are. Um, as I said, individual leaders and foreign ministers and people like Catherine Ashton, the EU foreign policy chief, are in, are in contact with Lavrov, with Putin. So, you know, it, it, we still have these diplomatic options. But a lot can change before Thursday. So I think the EU is, is playing a cautious approach because it really doesn't know what might happen between now and Thursday. But I suppose the question is, is the EU prepared to accept the annexation of Crimea or not? Um, and because the real worry is, will Putin move further into eastern Ukraine? The sense around here in Brussels is that probably won't happen. So if, if it doesn't happen, um, the question will be, well, will, will people be able to accept um, the annexation of Crimea? And I did say finally, but what do you think is the answer to that question? Um, are people prepared to let Crimea go, as it were? Yeah, this, this is the issue, because in a sense, leaders may have backed themselves in a corner. They have consistently uh, called the incursion illegal, the referendum illegal and unacceptable. Um, I mean, the position of NATO here is interesting as well. It yesterday said it was illegal and um, questionable and all those, that kind of language also. So I suppose it depends if, if, for example, if Putin were to move more troops in, that you know that could prompt a different reaction, more military reaction, perhaps. Um, so I think that that will be that might change the dynamic if, if we see more troops there. Um, but at the moment, I say he doesn't seem to be to be go, to be going that way. Uh, but I suppose we'll have to wait and see. Okay, Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Thank you. I'm joined now by Dan Redocklin, who's in Moscow en route to Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine. Dan, first of all, can I ask you to assess the latest developments? Um, in light of uh, Vladimir Putin's decision today to sign a treaty essentially uh, annexing Crimea and taking it into the Russian Federation? Well, what we've seen today is really uh, a stage that we've expected to reach um, uh, at some point. We didn't know how quickly it would come, but ever since Russian troops moved into Crimea and the pro-Russian leader was uh, was put in place there uh, only something like two and a half, three weeks ago now, things have moved at lightning pace. They had the referendum at the weekend uh, in which, according to official results, about 97% of people in Crimea voted in favor of joining Russia. So this has been on the cards for a little while now. Um, and it's been greeted, certainly, by most people in Crimea, certainly the, the ethnic Russian majority, um, as fantastic news. Most of them do want to return to Russia. Crimea was transferred within the Soviet Union from the Russian uh, Republic to the Ukrainian Republic only back in 1954. So lots of Crimeans are celebrating today after 60 years returning to Russia. And certainly the mood in Russia itself is is jubilant. There's a real patriotic fervor around everything that's happened over the last few weeks. Um, there is great celebration of what they say as uh, a, 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 a historic and, a, and historically unified Russia being reformed now with Crimea returning to Russia. And there is a sense that Russia is, has um, taken another major step on the world stage and, and shown itself to be a power that doesn't have to back down in the face of uh, Western opposition. Now, the referendum in Crimea on Sunday has been denounced by uh, the West in general, the European Union, by the United States, uh, as illegal, and they say they won't recognise it. But is um, the absorption of Crimea into the Russian Federation a fait accompli now? Is there anything anybody can do to stop it? It doesn't look like there's really practically anything anyone can do to stop it. Um, On the ground, Crimea has been lost to Ukraine uh, for the last few weeks. Russian troops have been in control uh, 
the uh, pro-Russian authorities are in full control politically in terms of security. They are coordinating all their major moves with Moscow, that is clear. Um, the international community has said that it will never recognize this uh, annexation of Crimea by Russia. The Ukrainian authorities have said they will never accept the loss of their territory. But on the ground, it's very hard to see what they can do. Uh, the sanctions that were imposed uh, yesterday by uh, the United States and the European Union did absolutely nothing to uh, to stay Putin's hand. The Ukrainian government is just settling in and really trying to establish its authority across the country. It's in no position to force Russia to leave Crimea. So it's hard to see on the ground what crime, what uh, Ukraine can do to reclaim its territory. Similar, in a, similarly, in a way, to the problem Georgia faced back in 2008 with the regions of uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Now, as we speak, Dan, you're on your way to Kharkiv, a city in eastern Ukraine, which has um, a very large Russian-speaking population, as does Donetsk, and there have been clashes in both of those cities in, in recent days. Um, has Putin today made it any clearer what his intentions are towards the rest of eastern Ukraine? Is he satisfied to grab Crimea, as it were, and leave it at that, or is there still a fear that Russian troops could cross the Ukrainian border into those cities? Uh, well, we just don't know at the moment. Putin has made some, uh, if you like, reassuring noises today. He has said that uh, Ukraine and the world shouldn't fear that he is going to try and uh, annex other regions of Ukraine. But at the same time, at the moment, there is absolutely no trust towards the Kremlin from either Ukraine or Western countries. They they don't know what he's going to do. They, they, they think Russia's behavior has been uh, unacceptable and, and very unpredictable over the last few weeks. And previously, uh, Mr. Putin and other senior Russian officials have said that they will intervene in other parts of Ukraine if they believe that Russian speakers are in danger in those areas. So uh, there's already been a comment from uh, William Hague, the British Foreign Secretary, saying that he fears that um, we're only one incident, one provocation uh, away from uh, potential Russian intervention in other parts of Ukraine. So we really don't know at the moment, uh, and it remains to be seen what happens in the weeks ahead. There is a very, very tense situation now in those eastern cities, like Kharkiv. Uh, there have been violent clashes there. People have died uh, in Donetsk and in Kharkiv. So it's hard to see how um, this very tense situation, a potentially explosive situation, can simply be turned off now by the Kremlin if Mr. Putin has decided that he's gone far enough in Ukraine. And Dan, you've been an observer of, of uh, Russian-Ukrainian uh, relations for um, quite a long time now. What is your assessment of, of what the consequences would be were Putin to take that final uh, or that extra step and send troops into eastern Ukraine? Would we be automatically into a war situation then um, or, or how bad would it be? Well, certainly um, the Ukrainian government weak and unstable and uh, very new in its position as it is, is insisting that it will not accept any further encroachment onto its territory. There has been no bloodshed in Crimea over the last three weeks. Um, Ukrainian forces have been surrounded in their bases by uh, far superior Russian forces. But at the same time, Ukraine, the new government, has mobilized 40,000 uh, reservists. It's, it's sending 20,000 of them to the armed forces, 20,000 to a new National Guard, and it is saying that it will defend its territory. It's very hard to see how, um, considering the state of the Ukrainian 
armed forces, how it could defend itself if it had to. But, I mean, looking further down the road, if there was further Russian intervention, we would see uh, possibly uh, a significant number of people in eastern Ukraine, um, they certainly wouldn't welcome violence, they wouldn't welcome war, but they may welcome uh, uh, a, a, some kind of guarantee from Russia that their traditional ties with Russia would be preserved. Um, in other parts of Ukraine, we would see uh, an absolutely furious response. Central and Western regions that feel closer to uh, the European Union and are very, very wary of Russia are even more hostile now, obviously, having uh, seen what's happened in Crimea. So they would really be um, set against Russia, one would imagine, for generations. This, it's, it, it will also be interesting to see in the weeks and months ahead how this plays out in the wider region. Will this intervention in Crimea mean that other former Soviet states are more pliable, if you like, to Russia's will, because they see how far Putin is willing to go to um, uh, ensure Russian uh, influence at the very least, or even dominance over these countries? Or um, will they be looking for stronger ties with, with the West to try and protect themselves from a possible Russian intervention? So it, many, many things have been set in play by the events in Crimea, and it will take a very long time uh, to see how they all play out across Ukraine, across Russia, and across the wider region. Okay. Dan McLaughlin, thanks for that assessment. We'll leave it there. At 12.40am on March the 8th, Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 left Kuala Lumpur with 239 passengers and crew on board, bound for Beijing. 40 minutes later, at 1.20am, as the plane left Malaysian airspace, a crew member believed to be the co-pilot said, all right, good night to air traffic controllers. Nothing has been heard from the crew or passengers since. Clifford Coonan, our Asia correspondent, joins me from Beijing. Clifford, the disappearance of this Malaysia Airlines jet is turning into one of the greatest aviation mysteries of all time. Can you update us, first of all, on the search for the plane and how many countries are now involved? Well, it certainly has become one of the greatest mysteries uh, in aviation history, and it's um, also turned into one of the biggest searches in aviation history. Um, there are now 26 countries involved. Uh, China revealed today that it has 21 satellites uh, scouring uh, the, the globe looking for uh, evidence of this, of this flight. And um, U.S., Australian, and Indonesian planes are looking all the way south of Sumatra and Indonesia, all the way down to the Indian Ocean. Uh, I believe the Australians alone are searching an area nearly as big as Australia itself. So it's, it's turned into a, an incredible search. And those last words that I mentioned from a crew member on the plane, all right, good night, they're now believed to have been spoken by the co-pilot Farik Abdul Hamid. Is he now at the centre of the investigations or has it moved on or are there other lines of inquiry still open? Well, there are many. The Malaysian authorities seem to be investigating numerous lines of authority, uh, sorry, of investigation. Um, they're looking at uh, hijacking, possible sabotage, terrorism, um, and even possible mental health questions um, uh, for members of the crew. So um, it's it's really still wide open, and we still are no closer to finding the the plane, it seems, than we were 10 days ago when it disappeared. Uh, it really is one of these situations where the conspiracy theorists, um, of whom there are many, uh, have just as much to say about what's going on as um, as, as the hardened investigators. Uh, one line of investigation is looking at Zahari Ahmad Shah, who is um, the the pilot, uh, and he is a strong backer of Anwar Ibrahim's People Just, People's Justice Party, which is the main uh, opposition party in Malaysia. Yeah. And there have been links. 
Sorry? Yeah, sorry, Cliff. No, I, sorry for interrupting. I was going to say this is an intriguing aspect of the case, isn't it? Um, the, this link with Anwar Ibrahim. Can you just tell us more, first of all, about Anwar Ibrahim and the conviction um, that was imposed on him at the weekend and what the background is to that story? Well, um, on March the 7th, which is the day before the plane disappeared, uh, Mr. Anwar was acquitted on sodomy charges. Um, these charges come up fairly regularly against Mr. Anwar, um, and he has served jail time um, and been convicted for them uh, on these charges over the years. They tend to come up around the time of elections and um, are seen as politically motivated by many people outside Malaysia uh, in support um, aimed at um, stopping Mr. Anwar making headway against the United Malays National Organization, which is the party that has ruled Malaysia for the last 56 years. so he um, basically, the, he's, his in-laws were in some way, um, are in some ways related to to the pilot, and um, there was there were links made in um, in a British newspaper and then carried in, in various other newspapers um, between the pilot and and Mr. Anwar. I mean, the first thing I suppose needs to be said is that this is an entirely, if you like, respectable association. In this case, it's the the, the captain of the plane happened to be a supporter of uh, an opposition politician. It's not, um, it doesn't imply an extremist uh, link or anything of that kind. Absolutely not. And um, it's, he believes that, that um, by even making this link between himself, he vehemently denies any links to any kind of terrorist activity or in any way to, to the disappearance of the, of the, of the aircraft. Um, and he says that even by making the links, that there, there's a polit- there's political motivation going on within Malaysia itself um, behind the activity behind these links. So um, it's just, um, it, as you say, he's just a supporter of, of the opposition party. But as I understand it, the, the link then that's being made is that some hours before this plane took off, the um, Anwar was convicted on the sodomy charge. Many people see this as a politically motivated conviction. And there was speculation mm-hmm. then that perhaps the captain of the plane, being a supporter of the opposition, was engaging in some kind of protest against the government. But is, is there any evidence at all to support this? Was it just speculation to begin with? Uh, there's, there's no evidence at all. And um, the, I think the only the possibility, the reason the pilot and the co-pilot have come into question at all um, is because um, they would have had the they have the technical expertise to fly the plane. Um, you know, if anyone was going to be in a position to make a plane disappear, would would be the the, the main the pilot and the co-pilot. But um, beyond that, there's no evidence or um, um, to suggest in any way that they're linked to the disappearance of the plane. We still we still don't know. And um, what has been the response in China, Clifford, to all of this? I mean, the majority of the passengers, I think 100, 153 uh, Chinese nationals in all, were were on the plane. Um, I, I presume there was some disquiet in the, uh, at how badly the investigation appeared to be handled, certainly in the early stages. Uh, that's right, and, um, and the, that disquiet continues. Um, I think the Chinese feel that, um, that the Malaysians aren't being thorough enough and that they're in how they're investigating it, and they also um, feel that they're not releasing enough information. Um, and very senior members of the Chinese government, including the Premier and, and indeed the President, have have um, have called on the Malaysians to do more and to be more active in their search. And um, it's been um, the you know there's so many of their nationals. I mean, two thirds of the of the um, passengers were Chinese. So obviously they have an interest in uh, in um, making sure that um, that 
that they find the plane and, and that the investigation goes smoothly. Um, but they, they have, and they've sent teams to Malaysia, but there has been a lot of disquiet indeed about, um, about how, how the Malaysians are handling the case, certainly from the Chinese perspective. And China has done its own checks on, on its citizens on board the plane and I understand has, has um, concluded there's certainly no terrorist link um, to any of its uh, nationals who were, who were on the plane. That's right. Yeah, initially there were there were suspicions that there might have been some links to um, separatists from uh, Xinjiang province in the far west, which is um, which is um, where there are separatists um, who are sort of um, who want to um, maybe set up a, in, an independent state there. Um, and a recent knife attack in Kunming in Yunnan province in the southwest was linked to Xinjiang uh, to Uyghur ethnic Uyghurs. Um, even though there was no formal link established with with any terrorist organizations, uh, the people involved were um, were um, of Uyghur background uh, ethnicity. So um, there were suspicions that maybe they, that the Uyghurs might have been involved in, in in this attack. But it would certainly wouldn't fit with what we've seen of the way as Uyghur separatists have been acting so far. They don't seem to have that kind of technological expertise. Uh, so um, and then today, with the the Malaysians, uh, China's ambassador to Malaysia came out and said that they could find no evidence of terrorist activity from from within its own nationals. And where then, Clifford, does the does the investigation go from here? Well, I think we just keep searching. I mean, the the, the as I say, this huge area that's being that's being covered is going to take months. I mean, one of the Australian um, search leaders today said that the, the analogy about a needle in a haystack was uh, was a very apt one. And um, that they basically keep looking. But um, the the situation, as it keeps updating, there, you know, the plane has, is heading all four directions. It's, it's, um, it could have gone anywhere in this huge area. There's, there are constant new theories coming out about, you know, perhaps that the plane um, followed uh, the trajectory of another aircraft to hide itself, that it may appear. Uh, some of the relatives, for example, have been given hope that maybe their, rel- that their, their passengers are still alive because uh, there was no evidence of an explosion or there's no evidence yet of, of an explosion having taken place. So um, we still appear to be no closer to, to finding this plane than we were 10, 10 days ago when the, when the story began. Clifford Coonan in Beijing, thank you. The leaders of pro-independence parties in Catalonia, in northwest Spain, were no doubt closely watching events in Crimea at the weekend. On December 13th last, Catalonia's president, Artur Mas, announced that voters in the region would be given their say on Catalan independence in a referendum on November 9th. However, Spain's Prime Minister, Mariano Rajoy, has said he can guarantee the referendum will not happen. I'm joined by our Madrid correspondent, Guy Hedgeco. Guy, there's an obvious parallel between the planned referendum in Catalonia and the one that has just taken place in Crimea, in that both were called in defiance of the central governments in Kiev and Madrid. Is that right? Yes, that is right. And uh, certainly the legality or illegality of the the vote uh, in Catalonia has been really at the heart of of the issue uh, here in Spain. It's been a real sort of um, bone of contention, and it's been the, the big factor that the Spanish government in Madrid has been highlighting all along. It's been saying that uh, this vote in November cannot take place um, at all, simply because technically it's not allowed to. The Constitution doesn't allow it to happen, and Catalonia's own regional statutes don't allow it to happen. Now, 
you, you could argue that the, the Spanish government could uh, could reform the constitution. It certainly has the the power to do that and and uh, change the rules that way. But I think you know, the, the government in Madrid doesn't want this to happen. There would be a political uproar if it did allow it to happen. And certainly, Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy doesn't want to be the, the prime minister who allows Catalonia either to hold a referendum on independence. Certainly, not the prime minister who allows Catalonia to become independent. And what exactly, Guy, are the Catalan voters being asked to vote on? Is, is, it, is it a simple yes or no question to independence for Catalonia? And, and what standing would the result have? Um, would the Spanish government have to recognise it? Well, it, it's not a simple yes or no question. It's, there are two questions. The first one is, uh, do you want Catalonia to be a state? And if the answer is yes, uh, the question is then, do you want Catalonia to be an independent state? Um, now, essentially, that is asking, do you want independence? And it's, it's slightly more nuanced than some of the, uh, the more radical uh, pro-independence parties wanted. And that just reflects the sort of negotiations that went into the, uh, the, the, the process ahead of drawing up this question. Um, there had to be a certain amount of sort of concessions on the part of um, some of the parties. So it's slightly more nuanced than many people wanted up in Catalonia, but it's essentially saying, you know, do, you want, uh, do you want independence? Um, in terms of the results standing, um, the, the government is insisting, if, well, first of all, that the, the vote won't take place. We still don't know if that will happen or not. But if it did take place, certainly the Spanish state and the Spanish government, I think, would say, you know, this is not valid. Um, it, it doesn't mean anything. Um, so it seems as if, as, as the rules stand, or as the law stands, the government would not have to recognise it. And uh, it's been described variously by Artur Mas, the president of Catalonia, as a, um, a referendum and, and a consultation. What exactly does he mean when he talks about a consultation? Is that a, a offered as a sort of sop to the Madrid government that um, we're merely sort of uh, trying to ascertain the, the views of the people here? Well, I, I think that's right, yes. I mean... Um, I, I, I think Artur Mas, who's, who's been leading this this whole process, um, he, he, his, his big argument has been that this is reflecting a sort of democratic process. You know, he's not set, he's, he's trying to get away from the idea that he's just sort of pushing ahead with independence at all costs just because he wants it or his um, his nationalist party um, up in Catalonia wants it. He says that he's reflecting the will of the Catalan people um, and he says the majority of them do now want, uh, want independence. Um, so all along he's been trying to highlight this idea that um, you know, he, he's, he's reflecting that. Um, and I think that the, in saying that, that it's consultative as well as being you know, a, a referendum, um, it, it reflects that idea that he's, he's going to the people and he's simply reflecting their will. And how much support, Guy, is there in Catalonia for independence? Well, we, we had a new poll out this week, um, and it uh, shows that 60% of Catalans uh, want independence. Now, that poll was taken uh, in December, and it shows a slight rise up from November, which would seem to su- suggest that the trend is that uh, support for independence is increasing. Now, that poll was taken by the Catalan regional government itself. So, you know, many people in Madrid are rather sort of skeptical about those polls because they say, well, you know, they would show massive support for independence because it's uh, the, the, the pro-independence lobby that's that's overseeing it. But but any poll you look at at the moment, whether it's taken, um, well, whatever whatever organisation is is taking the poll, they always seem to show that something over fifty percent of Catala- Catalans want independence. Um, yeah, it might be fifty-one percent, it might be sixty percent, like this poll, but it certainly shows that there is something 
close to a majority or above a majority that wants it. And when people talk about independence in Catalonia, are, is everybody talking about the same thing? Is it a complete breakaway from Spain? Or is it a, a more autonomy for Catalonia within a federal Spain? Or are those issues still to be worked out? Well, I mean, I, mean, I think if you go back a year or two, maybe those sort of questions were sort of more, more sort of in the public sphere and, and people were talking about those as much as they were talking about independence. And over the last year or year and a half, full-on independence has kind of come to the forefront. Um, and uh, that is really because... Um, a year and a half ago, Artur Mas went to Madrid and, and asked Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy for increased powers uh, for Catalonia over its sort of tax collecting and so on, and incre- increased financial powers in general. Um, and the, the Prime Minister said, no, you can't have that, um, I can't allow it. So the response was this full independence drive, saying, you know, well, if we can't have that, we're going we're to demand full-on independence. Um, but, but having said all that, the polls do seem to show that a lot of Catalans um, would actually prefer to see some kind of increased autonomy, um, more autonomy than what they have at the moment, but not necessarily full independence. So that for many, uh, many politicians, for example, are sort of, you know, are are still lobbying for that, saying, why don't we give Catalonia a bit more independence, but not full independence? And that would be a, a sort of third way that could keep everyone happy. And as you mentioned there, uh, Guy, the, this, the, the governing party, the Partido Popular, led by Rajoy, has taken a, a fairly hardline stance on this. Where does the opposition socialist party stand? Well, it's been quite difficult for them because they, um, I mean, they're a nationwide party, but they also have a big presence in Catalonia. And traditionally, they've been very strong in Catalonia. But um, the last couple of years, their support has dropped a lot and the, the, the support for nationalists in Catalonia has, has risen. Um, so they're really they're sort of struggling to find a spot here between what the nationalists are asking for, i.e. independence, and what the government, the conservative government in Madrid wants to see, which is you know, no change at all in Catalonia's status. Um, and what they've ended up with is, is what we were talking about just a moment ago, the kind of third way. They're, they're, they're proposing um, a, an increase in Catalonia's um, autonomous powers um, for example, you know, when it comes to its financial powers and, and tax status and so on, but not full independence. So it would still be part of Spain. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the third way that they're looking at. And do you think either referendum will go ahead on November 9th or will Rakhoi be able to deliver on his um, promise or, or threat, depending on your standpoint, uh, to stop it? It's very difficult to tell at the moment. I mean, if the, if the Catalans are, are absolutely determined to, to go ahead with this, then you, know, you could argue that you know, what, what can stop them, because um, it, it may not be binding in the end, the result, but they could, in theory, actually go through with the process of holding the vote, um, because you know, what can the government do? Will it send in the army? You know, will it get out the police to stop them? You, know, it, you, you get to that sort of situation. I don't think either side wants to see that. There is a possibility, however, that uh, the Catalan government uh, might simply call regional elections beforehand um, before the, the vote would be held. Uh, and says so instead of doing that, we're going to hold regional elections. Those elections, it would hope, would give a massive boost to the pro-independence parties, give them even more of a mandate for independence. And then it could sort of ride on that wave as well. But having said all that, at the weekend, just last weekend, Artur Mas said that he uh, hasn't ruled out declaring unilateral independence for Catalonia if he's pushed into that, uh, that corner. 
So there are still sort of all these kind of unknowns lurking out there. Um, it could be any one of those outcomes. As things stand, it looks like the, the, the vote will take place, but without being recognised by the central government. Okay, and finally, Guy, to come back to where we, we started, if you like, um, Crimea. How are the events in Crimea the weekend playing out in Catalonia and in Spain? Um, are people drawing parallels between the vote there and the, the planned referendum in Catalonia, or are they seen as entirely distinct and, and separate? Well, you know, obviously Crimea has been, you know, been all over the news in Spain, as it has everywhere. Um, and th- this kind of subplot has been the, you know, the comparison with Catalonia. People asking, well, is there a comparison there or not? Certainly the, um, the Catalan nationalists have been distancing themselves from Crimea, saying this is very different. Uh, the Catalan process is, is very different from Crimea. It has nothing to do with Crimea. Um, they are referendums for independence, but... Um, Crimea is going to join a great big power in the form of Russia. Now, you know, the equivalent would be Catalonia declaring independence and, you know, becoming part of France. Yeah, and it's certainly not going to do that. Um, And I think, you know, Catalans, those in favor of independence, you know, they they very much play on this idea that they've been, um, you know, repressed for decades or even centuries by the Spanish state. Um, And so, you know, they, they... they see themselves as the underdog in that sense, not in, in any way as you know, part of a, a big power. Um, so they have distanced themselves from the Crimea uh, situation a lot. But the, uh, the Spanish government has started to draw comparisons. Uh, the foreign minister, Jose Manuel Garcia Margallo, uh, this week has said, yes, there is a direct parallel between Catalonia and Crimea. Both processes were illegal. Both processes were unconstitutional. Um, now, some people think that's a bit unwise because he could be inflaming the situation further in Catalonia rather than calming it down. But certainly the strategy of the Spanish government at the moment is to draw that parallel and make it very clear to Spaniards. Guy Hedgeco in Madrid, uh, thank you very much. And uh, Guy will have more on this issue in Thursday's Irish Times. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. From producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis, and from me, Chris Dooley, goodbye.